You were listening to the Red Hill Church Sermon Podcast. Red Hill Church is a gospel-centered, missional church in the Edwardsville-Glencarbon community of the St. Louis Metro East. We exist to glorify God and make disciples by sharing the gospel and sharing our lives. Go ahead and remain standing. Open your Bibles, get out your phone or tablet, whatever you have, and open to the Gospel of Matthew. Chapter 21, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 13. I'll give you a minute to get there. My name is Janet Reams, and it's an honor to share God's word with you this morning. When they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus then sent two disciples telling them, Go into the village ahead of you. At once you will find a a donkey tied there with her foal. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Tell daughter Zion, see your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did just as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and its foal, Then they laid their clothes on them, and he sat on them. A very large crowd spread their clothes on the road. Others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. Then the crowds who went ahead of him and those who followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in an uproar saying, Who is this? The crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus went into the temple and threw out all those buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. He said to them, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of thieves. The word of the Lord. All right, thanks so much, Janet. Hey, it's uh, Palm Sunday. This is traditionally the Sunday when uh, uh, Baptist churches will wave a bunch of palm branches around and have kids wave a bunch of palm branches around. And as you know, I am not really a traditional guy. And a big part of the reasoning for that is a lot of times I don't understand what is happening. That's just generally true about most of my life. Uh, But particularly with Palm Sunday, I never really understood what the big deal was, like... We don't have any palm branches here anyway, and it seems like a super weird thing to do. Like, oh, Jesus is coming, quick, get some palm branches and wave them, maybe throw them on the ground and stuff. And I did not know at all what was going on. Recently, I got to share the gospel with one of my son's friends, and uh, he was asking, why don't we celebrate Lent? He's like, you guys are like, kind of like super Christians or something? but you don't celebrate Lent? And I asked him, why do you celebrate Lent? And he was like, that's an excellent question. And I don't really know other than we're Catholic, and so we celebrate Lent. I wanna say right out of the gate, if you celebrate Lent, that's great. Like if you wanna give something up and say, as I give that up, I want my heart to draw closer to Jesus, I'm all for that, right? But there's, there's nothing that happens like that in the 40 days right before Jesus dies. So G- Jesus doesn't observe Lent, 
before going to the cross. He doesn't forego chicken and beef on uh, Fridays so that he can have fish and beer on Fridays. I mean, he might have had fish and beer on Fridays. I don't know for sure, but I know that there's nothing like that in the Bible. But anything that you do that's holy or that's good that you say, I want to grow closer to Jesus, I'm all for it. I'm not for the observance of traditions just for tradition's sake. That is just, that doesn't appeal to me. It has no meaning to me. And I actually think it's kind of dangerous because I think later when that belief and that practice is challenged and there's no information to back up your explanation, your justification for doing it, that sometimes what happens is it's called deconstruction. Someone says, well, why do you do that? And you end up saying, I don't know, which then leads you to say, I don't really know why I do any of the things that I do, which leads you then to say, maybe there's no meaning in any of it, and I'm just going to walk away from all of it. So what we're going to do today is we're going to look at this Palm Sunday text and we're going to try to fill both our heads and our hearts with the knowledge of God and his word and a little bit of history. So if you are a nerd, this is your day, all right? This is it. I don't do a lot of history in my sermons because generally speaking, it's very difficult for me to find ways to make that super exciting and interesting and also I don't really love research, just full disclosure. I just don't love it. It's not my thing. I was going to be a lawyer until I found out most of it was research and not standing up and arguing and trying to get people to believe what you said. And somebody was like, maybe you should just be a preacher instead. There's also research in that, it turns out, and in most things. But anyway, back to the text, the triumphal entry. This is how this is traditionally phrased and, and named when you read through your Bibles. By the way, the headings are not in the original text. It's not like Matthew was like, the triumphal entry, chapter 21, verse 1. He didn't do any of that stuff. That's all added later for our benefit. But here's what happens. We have Jesus approaching. We have a great crowd gathering. We have the laying down of coats and palm branches. We have the cry of Hosanna, which just means save us. We have then the people that are outside the city gathering with the people inside the city and there's all this turmoil about Jesus and then Jesus goes in the temple and starts flipping tables over and driving out the money changers and that's pretty much the whole story, the key elements of the story, the key parts of the story that we're gonna look at this morning. The donkey, the large crowd and the palm branches, the arrival in Jerusalem, and the purification of the temple. But before we get to any of that, we have to know that right now in Jerusalem, they're beginning the celebration of the Passover. If you don't know what the Passover is, it's a part of the Jewish calendar and they celebrate it annually to mark when they were freed from slavery in Egypt. And the, the plagues came, the final plague, of course, being the angel of death was going to go throughout that, uh, that country and kill the firstborn of all livestock and all people. The firstborn sons were all going to die. And the only people who would be saved were those who did exactly what God told them to do. And what God told them to do was to take a spotless lamb, to offer it as a sacrifice, and then to take the blood and to cover the doorposts of your home, to basically cover your home in the blood of Jesus, in the blood of the lamb, I should say. It wasn't Jesus that they were sacrificing then. The blood of the lamb, you would cover the doorposts of your home, and then the angel of death quite literally would pass over your home. 
So you would be saved by doing what God told you to do and protecting yourselves with the blood of the lamb. There are about two million people gathering into Jerusalem, in and around Jerusalem, about two million people gathered to celebrate the Passover. And that's the scene that's taking place. And just before this has happened, Jesus, by the way, just before this, has resurrected Lazarus from death. That account is in the Gospel of John, not in the Gospel of Matthew. And you'll remember it because Lazarus died and then he wasn't dead anymore. It's kind of a momentous thing. And then after that, they had what must have been a really, really interesting dinner party. You know what I'm saying? They threw a dinner party and Lazarus is there and everybody's like, so you were dead. And, and now you can talk. Like, just you, will you just take it from there, Lazarus? We're just, we're just going to you know, just sort of listen up. But that's, that's what's happening in the community at this moment. And Jesus is riding into Jerusalem. He's gonna be riding on this donkey into Jerusalem. And as he does, he's met by the Galileans that he's been ministering to and with and coming into the city. So that's where we are, okay? So it's Passover. They approach Jerusalem, came up to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives. Jesus then sent two disciples telling them, go into the village ahead of you. At once you'll find a donkey tied there with her foal. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. This took place so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Hi, Phoebe. Tell daughter Zion, see, your king is coming to you gentle and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did just as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and its foal. Then they laid their clothes on them and he sat on them. So the donkey, time of Passover, two million people in and around Jerusalem. And the donkey, by the way, is symbolic for Jewish monarchs during times of peace. When they wanted to make peace or when they were returning after conquering, they were bringing back peace. They would ride on a donkey. So Jesus here is effectively embracing his kingship. And if you look back at Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, that's the prophecy that's being referenced by Matthew right here. It says in Zechariah 9, 9, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus knows that he's fulfilling prophecy. He understands the assignment. He knows what he's supposed to do. He is intent on being obedient to his heavenly father. We talked a lot about this last week, that his design was to be obedient to his heavenly father, to do what God told him to do, to accomplish the purposes for which God sent him. And one of those purposes was to fulfill prophecy. So Jesus says, go get the donkey that's never been ridden. The mom's gonna be with it. I'm gonna ride them into Jerusalem in order to fulfill this prophecy. That's why he does it. The donkey is significant because Jesus, for the first time, is embracing his kingship and is, for the first time, creating a public spectacle. Every other time in Jesus' ministry, he's like, don't tell anybody. Don't talk about it. Don't publicize it. Don't advertise it. But it's Passover time. 
Two million Jews are gathered to celebrate the Passover. Jesus says, go get a donkey. I'm going to ride it in. I'm embracing my messianic kingship. I'm embracing my role as the king of Israel. If you look over in John's account of the triumphal entry, in John chapter 12 is where this is found. I want to read it to you because I want you to see how John records at the end of his story, like the end of his accounting of this event, the effect that it has on the Pharisees. It says in John chapter 12, starting in verse 12, the next day when the large crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took palm branches and went out to meet him. They kept shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion, look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. However, when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Meanwhile, the crowd which had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify. This is also why the crowd met him, because they had heard he had done this sign. Then the Pharisees said to one another, you see, you've accomplished nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Jesus embraces the identity of king when he sits down on that donkey and rides it into the city. He knows it, the crowd knows it, and the Pharisees know it. And he is essentially lighting the wick that will set this city on fire. He is coming in to fulfill what God has appointed for him. In verses eight and nine, it says a very large crowd uh, spread their clothes on the road. Others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. Then the crowds who went ahead of him and those who followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. The crowd and the palm branches. Very loud crowd. These are Galilean pilgrims. These are people who are part of the northern kingdom of Israel coming down to Jerusalem, although they would say going up to Jerusalem because you're always going up to Jerusalem no matter what your topography is because Jerusalem is the elevated city and the temple is the elevated place. So you're going up to Jerusalem and you're going up to the temple. It doesn't really matter what you have as far as elevation is concerned. So Jesus, after raising Lazarus from death in Galilee, comes with all of these Galilean pilgrims. It's the Passover. There's the resurrection. He's been doing all these miracles. He's been driving out demons. He's been healing people. And the confluence of all of these events comes as Jesus sits on a donkey, rides it into the city, announcing his kingship. And the community, the people are ready for a revolution. They are ready for Jesus to ascend to the highest place and to accomplish his purposes, which by the way, they believe are also their purposes. Jesus is gonna come in and do what we want him to do. If he did all of those things, then surely he can fill in the blank with the thing that they wanted him to do was. And haven't you and I, haven't we felt like this? When we read the Bible, we're like, if Jesus did all of this stuff, if God did all of these great things, then surely he can do this simple little thing for me. Jesus, you did all of, you resurrected Lazarus from death. You cast out demons. You, you, like, you provided 
fish and loaves of bread for thousands upon thousands of people. The blind see, the lame walk, the deaf hear, the mute speak. And if you can do all of that, then surely you're the one who's going to be able to do this. And we fill in the blank with something, and they fill in the blank with something. And what did they want? They wanted the same thing that the disciples wanted. They want Jesus to lead a revolution, to conquer the Romans, to bring purity back to the temple, to bring purity back to Judaism, to bring a national identity back together, and to rule as the king over them. They wanted to be great as a nation again. They wanted to be prominent and free and prosperous without that Roman yoke living upon them. So what do they do? They begin waving palm branches. And I'm like, okay, but why do they wave palm branches? I mean, what is that about? So it's time for a little history now, okay? Everybody ready? Get your pencils sharpened up. In 323, this really important guy named Alexander the Great died. You've probably heard of him. He conquered most of the world, and then he wept because there, were, there was nothing left for him to conquer. And then shortly, very shortly, after he finishes conquering the whole world, he dies. You know what? He was too busy conquering the world to procreate. And so what did he do? He divided up his kingdom among his four generals. One of those generals was a guy named Seleucus, and his kingdom became vast, covering Afghanistan, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Iran, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, Turkey, Armenia, and Tajikistan. Under the Seleucid king Antiochus III, the Seleucids fought as far to the east as India and as far west as Palestine, where they defeated the Ptolemies of Egypt. Everybody with me still? Excellent. Well, in 190 BC, Roman soldiers set foot in Asia for the first time, and the next year at the Battle of Magnesia, 75,000 Seleucid soldiers faced off with 30,000 Romans in battle. And despite the odds, Antiochus III and the Seleucids were completely defeated and lost possession of Turkey. All right? Now, Stuff starts getting a little more detailed and a little more interesting. And rather than write all this out, I have printouts. So if anybody would like these later, you can have them because I won't need them after this. <laughs> I want you to know what's happening in the minds of Jewish people as Jesus is arriving at this moment in history. And all of this plays into why they are waving palm branches. And it's important for us to know why they're waving palm branches, okay? Around 200 BC, the Jews lived as a semi-autonomous people in the land of Israel, referred to at the time as Judea, which was controlled by the Seleucid Greek king of Syria, whose administrative area emerged after the death of Alexander the Great, which I just told you about. So the Jewish people paid their taxes to the Greco-Syrian overlords and they, they, they accepted Seleucid authority because they were still given this kind of loose nation-state general freedom to operate the way that they wanted to. Well, around 175 BC, shortly after their defeat, shortly after that 190 BC battle at Magnesia where they are defeated, shortly after that, Antiochus IV who's called Antiochus Epiphanes, ascended to the Seleucid throne, known in both Jewish and Greek sources as arrogant, vain, and generally pretty awful. He soon became 
the enemy of the Jews. After his choice for the high priesthood in Jerusalem, Menelaus was forced to abdicate the office. Antiochus came to Jerusalem and plundered the temple. Certain Jews rebelled violently at this, and Antiochus retaliated with utter ruthlessness. He's ruthless. I'm going to read you an account from Josephus in just a minute who is the preeminent Jewish historian of the first century. 168 BC, his officer Apollonius captured Jerusalem and massacred Jews. He massacred thousands and thousands of them. And a royal decree was issued proclaiming the abolition of Jewish worship. Sabbaths and festivals were outlawed. Circumcision was banned. Sacred scriptures were to be surrendered and Jews were compelled to offer sacrifices to idols. The possession of a sacred book or the performance of the rite of circumcision was reportedly punished with death. Here's what Josephus had to say about all of this. He said, Antiochus got possession of the city by treachery, at which time he spared not so much as those that admitted him into it. What happened was he sent one of his generals in, and the general came in under the banner of peace, was welcomed in under the banner of peace, and then when he got in, he began executing uh, Thousands upon thousands of Jewish people. Uh, it says, on account of the riches that lay in the temple, but he led, but led by covenous inclination, and in order to plunder its wealth, he ventured to break the league he had made. So he left the temple bare and took away the golden candlesticks and the golden altar and the table and the altar and did not abstain from even the veils which were made of fine linen and scarlet. He also emptied it of its secret treasures and left nothing at all remaining. And by this means cast the Jews into a great lamentation. For he forbade them to offer those daily sacrifices which they used to offer to God according to the law. And when he had pillaged the whole city, some of the inhabitants he slew, some he carried captive together with their wives and children, so that the multitude of those captives were taken alive, amounted to about 10,000. 10,000 Jews carried off into slavery. He also burned down the finest buildings, and when he had overthrown the city walls, he built a citadel in the lower part of the city, for the place was high and overlooked the temple, on which account he fortified it with high walls and towers, and put into it a garrison of Macedonians. However, in that citadel dwelt the impious and wicked part of the multitude, from whom it proved that the citizens suffered many and sore calamities. And when the king had built an idol upon God's altar, he slew swine upon it. And so offered a sacrifice neither according to the law nor the Jewish religious worship in that country. Antiochus IV believed himself to be the embodiment of the Greek god Zeus. And in order to completely humiliate, defile, and attempt to eradicate Judaism, he takes pigs and forces the Jews to, alter an, uh, to, to offer an unclean offering on their altars, on all of their altars, even in the temple, the most holy place where God is supposed to be worshipped. He forces them to take this unclean animal and offer it as a sacrifice to Zeus. By the way, next to the temple, he would set up an arena where they would wrestle according to the Greek style. And the men would wrestle, and they wrestled completely unclothed. And if any were found to be circumcised, they would be executed. Their families would be investigated, and the boys that were circumcised would be ex executed. And the women would be 
terribly mistreated and sold off into slavery. It says he also compelled them, Josephus says, he also compelled them to forsake the worship which they paid their own God and to adore those whom he took to be gods and made them build temples and raise idol altars in every city and village and offer swine upon them every day. He also commanded them not to circumcise their sons and threatened to punish any that should be found to have transgressed his injunction. He also appointed overseers who should compel them to do what he commanded and indeed, Many Jews there were who complied with the king's commands, either voluntarily or out of fear of the penalty that was denounced. But the best men and those of the noblest souls did not regard him, but did pay a greater respect to the customs of their country than concern as to the punishment which he threatened the disobedient. On account of this, they every day underwent great miseries and bitter torments. Here's what they went through under Seleucid control. They were whipped with rods. Their bodies were torn to pieces and were crucified while they were still alive. They also strangled those women and their sons whom they had circumcised. And the king had appointed, hanging their sons about the necks as they were upon the crosses. And if there was any sacred book of the law found, it was destroyed and those with whom they were found were miserably punished and executed also. This, Antiochus IV, is the fulfillment of the prophecy made in the book of Daniel. If you flip back to the book of Daniel and look in chapter 11, verses three and four of Daniel chapter 11 say, then a warrior king will arise. He will rule a vast realm and do whatever he wants. But as soon as he is established, his kingdom will be broken up and divided to the four winds of heaven, but not to his descendants. It will not be the same kingdom that he ruled because the kingdom will be uprooted and will go to others besides them. And then it tells the stories of some of those kings. Moving down to verses 28 through 33, Daniel prophesies this, the king of the north will return to his land with great wealth, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant. He will take action, then return to his own land. At the appointed time, he will come again to the south, but this time will not be like the last. Ships of Katim, by the way, ships of Katim, that's Rome. Ships of Katim will come against him, and being intimidated, he will withdraw. Then he will rage against the holy covenant and take action. On his return, he will favor those who abandon the holy covenant. His forces will rise up and desecrate the temple fortress. They will abolish the regular sacrifice and set up the abomination of desolation. With flattery, he will corrupt those who act wickedly toward the covenant. But the people who know their God will be strong and take action. This is what happens. The result of a guy named Mattathias, 167 BC, Antiochus orders that an altar to Zeus be erected in the temple, commands the Jews to offer sacrifices on it, and then this guy named Mattathias, a Jewish priest, leads a violent rebellion against Antiochus' tyranny. Is everybody still with me? Is anybody asleep? Wake back up, because this is where it starts to get really weird. His son Judah became known as Judah Maccabee. Maccabee means hammer. This guy's name was Judah the Hammer. <laughs> this is a name, y'all. This is a name. By the way, the apocryphal books, 1st and 2nd Maccabees, are about the Maccabean Revolution, being led 
by Judah the Hammer. Under his generalship, the Jewish revolt against the Seleucid monarchy was successful. Jerusalem was liberated in 165 BC and the defiled temple was reclaimed. That's what happens, right? And in 2 Maccabees chapter 10, this might be the only church in the country reading from the apocryphal books that's a Baptist church this morning. 2 Maccabees chapter 10, verses 1 through 9. This is where we start to see it kind of accumulating all together, all right? It says, when Maccabeus and his companions under the Lord's leadership had recovered the temple and the city, they destroyed the altars erected by the foreigners in the marketplace and the sacred shrines. After purifying the temple, they made another altar. Then with fire struck from flint, they offered sacrifice for the first time in two years. They burned incense and lighted lamps. They also set out the showbread. When they had done this, they prostrated themselves and begged the Lord that they might never again fall into such misfortunes and that if they should sin at any time, he might chastise them with moderation and not hand them over to blasphemous and barbarous Gentiles. On the anniversary of the day on which the temple had been profaned by the foreigners, that is the 25th of the same month, Kislev, the purification of the temple took place. The Jews celebrated joyfully for eight days as on the Feast of Booths. By the way, this joyful eight-day celebration for the Jews is still celebrated today and is known as Hanukkah. Remembering how a little while before they had spent the, food, uh, the Feast of Booths living like wild animals in the mountains and in caves. In verse 7 it says, Carrying rods entwined with leaves, beautiful branches and palms, they sang hymns of grateful praise to him who had successfully brought about the purification of his own place. By public decree and vote, they prescribed that the whole Jewish nation should celebrate these days every year. Such was the end of Antiochus, surnamed Epiphanes. This is why the crowd was waving the palm branches. They were remembering when the temple was defiled, when they were being ruled by the Seleucids, when their religion was completely disregarded and outlawed, and when the Maccabee, Judah the Hammer, through, by the way, guerrilla warfare tactics, defeated the Seleucids and defeated Antiochus Epiphanes, won this great victory for the Jewish people and set them up once again, albeit briefly, as an independent nation, free from outside rule. So Jesus creates this spectacle by saying, bring me a donkey, a symbol of, uh, of Jewish royalty in times of peace. I'm going to ride it into the city at the time of Passover at this same time, all these people gathered together to celebrate their freedom from slavery. Jesus riding in as this great king and these Galilean pilgrims celebrating and welcoming him as this great king saying, Hosanna, son of David, 
Blessed is he who came, uh, comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Hosanna means save us. Son of David means rightful king. They're saying save us. Our rightful king, you belong here. This is your place. We are your people. Now go and kill the Romans. Let's set up this political kingdom. We want you to do the thing that we want you to do. That's what it's all about for us. We want you to sit on the throne that we have constructed for you. We want you to be the king that we need you and imagine you to be. We want you to be the Lord who will protect us and punish our enemies. We want you to be the king of our desires. Well, Jesus says when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city is in an uproar saying, who is this? And the crowds are saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. If you flip backwards two weeks in our sermon series or a few pages in your Bible to Matthew 16, you'll remember that when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, it says in Matthew 16, 13, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Jesus would go on to ask, but who do you say that I am? And Peter responds, you are the Messiah, the Son of God. The Galileans are bringing Jesus into Jerusalem, before him, with him, and after him, shouting, Hosanna, save us, you're our king. Hosanna in the highest heavens. Jerusalem turns into this uproar, and they're like, who is this? Who is this person? And the response is, a prophet. He's the prophet, Jesus. I am a preacher. That is a true statement. Jesus was a prophet. That is a true statement. But it's not definitional enough. It doesn't tell the whole story. It's important for us to know that Jesus won a victory. But not the victory that the world designed for him to win but the victory that his father designed for him to win. Well, he goes into the temple, doesn't he? Jesus went into the temple and threw out all those buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. He said to them, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a den of thieves. Jesus, we want you to overcome our enemies. Jesus, we want you to reign in power. Jesus, we want you to purify the temple. Jesus, we want you to save us. Jesus, we want you to provide for us. Jesus, we want you to preserve and protect us. Jesus, we want you to give us eternal life that we might rule and reign with you. And to all of that, Jesus says, yes, I will do all of that. The problem for us the thing that we have to deal with, that the disciples had to deal with, that everyone who encounters Jesus has to deal with, is that he will not operate on our calendar. 
It's always the temptation. And I hate to say it, but I am often like Satan in the wilderness tempting Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. Satan comes to Jesus and says, I'll give you all of this, and all you have to do is do the thing that I tell you. How many times have I prayed, and how many times have you prayed, God, if you will do this, then I will worship you. If you'll just do the thing that I want you to do, then I will follow you, and I'll yield my life to you, and I'll surrender to you, and I'll recognize your power, and I'll recognize your authority, and I'll recognize your greatness. How many times have we said, it doesn't really matter what else is going on, I'm kind of putting you in this box that if you don't do the thing that I want you to do, then I'm really going to start to question whether or not you're who you say you are. It's the temptation that Satan offers to Adam and Eve. Has God really said this? Is this really what he wants for you? You can actually have this thing if you just take the shortcut. It's what the thief on the cross said to Jesus. If you're really the Savior, why don't you get us all off these crosses? It's what the disciples say. Are you going to set up your kingdom now? Even after the resurrection in the book of Acts is now the moment Should we get out the palm branches now? And even me saying, there's some stuff that I need you to fix right now. In just a few days, guys, these millions of people who have been celebrating his arrival and saying, you're the king, are going to turn violently on him. Probably not all of them stuck around for that, but you got to believe some of them did. Some of them waving palm branches and throwing their coats on the ground, creating this organic red carpet for Jesus to ride in on and saying, Hosanna, are now saying, crucify him. And why? Why are they doing that? I'll tell you why. Because Jesus wouldn't do immediately what they wanted him to do. God has wrought for us an incredible victory. He has purchased through the blood of his own son, an incredible victory for us. It's described in Revelation chapter 9. Excuse me, chapter 7, starting in verse 9. If you flip back there or you just listen, Revelation chapter 7 and starting in verse 9, here's what John the Revelator had to say. After this, I looked. And there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. I like that. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne. And to the Lamb, all the angels stood around the throne, and along with the elders and the four living creatures, they fell face down before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, Who are these people in white robes and where did they come from? I said to him, Sir, you know. Then he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. The ones seated on the throne will shelter them. They will no longer hunger. They will no longer thirst. The sun will no longer strike them, nor will any scorching heat. For the Lamb, who is at the center of the throne, will shepherd them. 
He will guide them to springs of the waters of life, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Everything that you could ever imagine God doing for you. He has promised to provide. He promised to preserve you, to protect you. You go through sadness, he has promised to wipe every tear from your eye. You go through sickness and loss and death, he has promised resurrection for those whose robes have been washed, made white by the blood of the Lamb. For his people, he has promised a great mercy, a severe mercy, a prolonged mercy, a provision of peace that doesn't live just on the outside, but goes to the very core of all that we are. A satisfaction that lasts and lasts and never grows weary and never grows old. In Revelation chapter 19, we see the end of the story. The next time that Jesus arrives, then I saw heaven opened and there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True and he judges and makes war with justice. His eyes were like a fiery flame and many crowns were on his head. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses, wearing pure white linen. A sharp sword came from his mouth so he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God, the Almighty. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of kings and Lord of lords. It's so fascinating to see that the desires of the people in this moment were for a king who would rule and punish and bring justice. And Jesus came as a king who would forgive and offer mercy. There is coming a day when everyone who has not yet received that mercy will cry out to him for it, discovering that all that remains is justice. He will not be the king of our fashioning, he will not be the king of our calendar. He will not be the king of our own making. The victory that he has won is the victory that his father sent him to win. It's purchased for you everything you could ever want and more than you could ever imagine. But make no mistake, he didn't come and accomplish this victory just to be your buddy. He came to be the king, the actual king. Not the one that we give assignments to, but the one that we give ourselves and our submission to. The one to whom we say, you are the ruler of all, 
I'm the sovereign of all. You're the one who's in charge of it all. I'm yielding myself to you. That's the victory that's won for us. And those of us, by the way, those of us who've, who've submitted our lives to Jesus, those of us who've given our lives to Jesus, we will one day wave the palm branches in heaven and celebrate the great victory that he, that he wrought for us. And if you're here this morning and you're like, man, I'm just really a pretty generally terrible sinner. I'm not sure what Jesus could do for me. Could I just tell you, that's part of what makes the party so good and the news so good is that there's not some sin that you're going to commit that's a sharp enough ax to chop down the tree. There's not some rebellion that you can mount that's going to overthrow his government. You can't create a coup that is bigger and more powerful than his salvation and his work for you on the cross. That's what the Easter story is about. Not that he's the king who does what we want. He's the king who does what his father wants. Not that he gives us victory in every single moment and in every single way of our earthly lives, but that he secures for us the victory that we actually need. The freedom, not from some kind of tyrannical rule in this life, but the freedom from the tyranny of our own sin and our own selves, and instead sets us free to know, love, and follow him. That's what Jesus has done for us. That's what Easter is about. That's what the waving of palm branches really signifies. And I want you to know that this morning, you can give your life to Jesus. You can surrender to him. Some of you, like me, have surrendered to him but have also started trying to put him into some kind of a box or have put him into that box and have been punishing him, relegating him to a subservient status in our lives because he didn't do what we wanted him to do when we wanted him to do it. And we need to be reminded this morning the meaning of those palms to ask ourselves what kind of a king Am I looking for Jesus to be? Because he's only going to be one kind, the kind who is absolutely obedient to the plans of his Father. When I am disappointed with Jesus, the problem is not with Jesus. When I'm frustrated with Jesus, the problem is not with Jesus. That doesn't mean that we don't experience loss, that we don't experience pain, that we don't experience discouragement or anxiety or fear. It means that we know that what Jesus purchased for us is secure, is true, and is the most real of all real things. It will outlast every sad, wicked, and painful thing. So we weep and we grieve, and we fear, and we struggle, but not like people without hope. This is what Jesus brings to the equation of your life. Not comfort, not ease, but the the firm belief, the knowledge of what's actually real and true. As C.S. Lewis said, that someday, Every sad thing will come untrue. And every tear that you ever could cry, 
he'll wipe away. There'll be no sickness and no sadness in that place because you'll be what you're supposed to be and you'll know him as he truly is. I want to invite you right now to bow your head with me and to consider what kind of palm branch you have in your hands. Eternity is going to unfold the mystery for you. This morning, Jesus is riding into this place, offering you peace and mercy. And Paul told the Corinthians, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Just listen carefully to what Jesus is saying to you this morning and do it. I'm gonna pray for us, invite you to take the Lord's Supper, remembering that the way Jesus purchased the victory was not by being a great conquering hero who killed others, but by being a great conquering hero who willingly laid his own life down, creating a new covenant of peace so that you and I could be connected to the Father. God, thank you for Jesus who was obedient where we could not be obedient. Who brings mercy when what we feel we deserve is punishment. A mercy that's beyond anything we could even hope for. Something that just has to be experienced. I pray, God, if there's anyone here who has not experienced that mercy that this morning they would taste and see that you are good. For those of us who have tasted that mercy and have known you as our Savior, but have grown cold or hard or calloused for any number of reasons, would you break through the walls that we've created? Remind, of, uh, remind us of what's real and what's true. Speak to us, for your servants and we're listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Respond as the Lord leads and I'll be available to pray or talk to anybody who needs it. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Red Hill Church Sermon Podcast. If you have any questions about this message, our church, or the gospel, or if you'd like to get in touch with one of our elders, you can visit our website at www.redhill.church. Navigate to the I'm New tab and click the option for Connection Card. Filling out this online card will allow you to get in touch with us and one of our elders will follow up as soon as possible. Thanks for listening and be sure to check back next week as we continue to study and apply God's Word together.